Well, amen. It's good to be with you again this morning to uh, assist with allowing uh, rest to Jeff and to Nancy. Uh, pray that he's getting that rest and, and refreshment. And also just uh, time uh, in, in the Word for his own uh, soul simply to be fed and is in a relationship with the Lord. Uh, so it's good to be able to uh, serve you with the, the, West, the rest of Westminster and uh, hope that you've been uh, blessed having uh, Duncan and uh, Pastor Hammond um, already uh, with you. Uh, this morning we're continuing in uh, Psalm 19, the second uh, part of this psalm. Um, what we'll be doing is, uh, what David did is he started broadly looking at uh, all of creation, uh, that the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, then suddenly in this psalm, he draws uh, near to God uh, as his, it's personal, uh, his experience of the Lord through uh, scripture uh, and the beauty of it, the preciousness of it, as we, we just uh, sang so uh, this psalm moves from creation to God as a personal, covenant Lord, and as he draws near to David. Um, so if you would uh, give your attention to uh, the reading of God's word from Psalm chapter 19, uh, verses 7 through 14. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his heirs? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my heart and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Will you pray with me? Um, Father, we thank you for your word to us. This morning, we ask that you would uh, work its truths into our hearts this morning by your Holy Spirit. Illuminate our hearts and your minds that we might not just be hearers of your word, uh, but doers of them as well, uh, finding them uh, sweet and satisfying. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine uh, for a minute uh, that you uh, go into a restaurant and you find your table and you sit down uh, and you just notice a sweet couple at the table next to you. Uh, and you start to, you, you order your food, uh, you start to have your meal, but after a while you notice something strange. Uh, the couple hasn't said a single word to each other since you've gotten to 
the restaurant. They're not talking. It's it's a little weird. Uh, and now you start to wonder, maybe there's something wrong with their relationship. Are they mad at each other? What's happened? Why aren't they talking to each other? Maybe they talked in the past, and now to avoid controversy, they just decided to be silent. But of course, uh, nothing life-giving, nothing good can happen without conversation. Nothing challenging, nothing transformative will happen in that relationship. Relationships need conversation, dialogue, a sharing of each other's thoughts and hearts. Recall, this is David's prayer to the Lord. He is in dialogue with God, and David is praying for a reason. He's starting big and driving inward to his very relationship to God and his word, and how this reveals the sin in his heart and his need for redemption. We could work through this psalm a little bit like we did at the beginning and see that the attributes of general revelation, of creation's revelation to us. And we could focus on the doctrine of special revelation and say that it's, it's sufficient, that it's all that we need, it's, it's necessary uh, to know of salvation. There's a clarity to Scripture uh, that's not found in creation. It's also authoritative. It settles our uh, disputes of doctrine and how to live our life. Uh, it's right. Uh, we could talk about inerrancy and inspiration. Uh, and then we can maybe clarify the relationship of the Old Testament uh, to the New Testament. All of these things are found uh, throughout this psalm. Um, but what I want us to do is focus more on what David is doing in the prayer itself. Uh, less than the, the good doctrines that we can trace from here to the rest of Scripture. So what David is doing is he is struggling with his own heart. He is praying and saying that he goes to Scripture to encounter the personal holiness, the wisdom and the goodness of God that is revealed to him in the Word. He goes to be helped personally for his heart to be changed, to see his sin, and to pray and to ask God for help in response to those things. He asks God for wisdom and not foolishness, for God to be his rock and his redeemer. So as we move through these areas, in verses 7 through 9, we're going to focus on the nature of the word. Uh, and then in verses 10 through 11, the, the delightfulness of the word. And in verses 12 through 14, the right response to Revelation. So look with me again in verses 7 through 9. The nature of the word and its effective operation on us. Uh, David overflows with six terms for scripture, six effects of it. And he works to show that it impacts the whole man, the whole self. He's, he speaks of the law the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the fear of the Lord, and the rules of the Lord. And he says that the word is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. And it revives, it makes wise, it causes rejoicing and lightning. It endures, it's righteous. And it impacts his soul, it impacts the simple, it impacts the heart, the eyes, and it's forever. Its impact is lasting. 
we know that a person's character is revealed in their speech. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. God's character is revealed to us in his word. So all these attributes that we see in scripture are a reflection of the one who authored it. When we read the law, let's work through these six things fairly quickly. The law of the Lord, the Torah of the Lord, it revives the soul. Uh, when we read about the law, uh, it could be the law given at Sinai, the Ten Commandments. Uh, David could be speaking of the Pentateuch or just all of Scripture, everything uh, that God uh, says to us. And the law is specifically from God, who draws near to us in covenant. Uh, as God draws near to Israel, think of the Ten Commandments. He draws near to them. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. I am your covenant Lord. I will be your God. You will be my people. And I give you the perfect, flawless Ten Commandments. The perfect, flawless instructions for the tabernacle. Uh, the perfect record of God's redeeming his people throughout history and exodus. God's law is flawless. It does not mislead. It is consistent. It provides the way of life, refreshing or restoring our souls by pointing us to Christ. The Bible restores, reconciles, fills that which is empty spiritually with new life. As the Spirit breathes into Adam's life, so the Holy Spirit, through the Word, uh, comes near and breathes spiritual life to dead hearts and souls. It's his tool to do so. And he does this mostly by pointing us to Christ, who fulfilled the law on our behalf, and that new life we bear fruit in keeping with Christian obedience. So as king, David would have copied all of Deuteronomy by hand. Uh, and this was a delight to him. He doesn't say, I look back on my life, and man, the worst part of it was that time I spent copying the law. No, the law is perfect. It's reviving. He would have had time to meditate on the goodness of it. He doesn't recoil from the fact that Scripture has commandments and guidance to us uh, in our life. No, it's a life-giving guide for doctrine, teaching, instruction, or rebuke. It's life-giving because it shows us our sin. It shows us the path we ought to live. It shows us how to grow in our relationship with God. And once we are shown what is good and lovely and what is sinful and displeasing to God, then we are driven to trusting in both the work of Jesus on the cross to wash away sins and the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to live according to this law. Never adding to it, never taking away from it, never looking to it abstractly apart from relationship to God, never looking to the law for salvation or even the spiritual strength to keep it, but instead as a guide to how God desires us to live and a guide to the very character of God. What would David's experience of the law have been after he spent all that time copying it? He would have seen in there, yes, the holiness codes. He would have seen about clean and unclean animals, cleansing rituals, and also the sacrifices. 
And yet the blood of bulls and goats do not take away sin, according to the author of Hebrews. But it did point his faith past these types of shadows to the coming Messiah, to his needed Savior, to God as his Redeemer, to the one who cleanses him from sin. For David, it is the life-giving word from God saying to Israel on Mount Sinai, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You have been redeemed. Now here is the way of life. Worship me alone. Worship me how I desire. Honor me. Receive my name. Now treat your parents, your neighbors, and others this way. Well, there's parallelism in the psalm. So David is saying almost the same thing six times with just slight variation uh, and, and building it out to fill out the picture of all that he thinks about God's word. And so we probably shouldn't take too fine of a comb and, and nitpick through the distinctions too much, though you can look at some distinctions. But David focuses on what the law as a whole does. It makes the simple wise. He's already said they're life-giving, it's refreshing, and now the law gives wisdom. It removes the naivety of sin. Uh, there's nothing like a person oblivious to their self-centered, manipulating ways, blind to their own hearts. We all need light shed on us and wisdom to live. Uh, in the 1800s, in the Midwest, people often learn to read through two sources, uh, two things, uh, the Sears catalog, which I've seen physically, since replaced by Amazon, so our younger people here probably have never seen a Sears catalog since Amazon, uh, Amazon came along and put the death knell on that. And secondly, the Bible. They had a Sears catalog, and they had the Bible. They learned to read from Scripture. Now, who would be wiser? Uh, an 1800s Midwesterner who learned to read from the Bible and made it their meditation day or night, or the highly educated person who may have knowledge in different areas. No, it's the one made wise by Scripture and a little bit of Sears catalog. The one made wise by Scripture is a truly wise person. Whole communities and families are blessed when a person finally has the word impact their life. And communities are harmed uh, by the curse of biblically illiterate fools. So the Lord's word grants wisdom. The Lord's precepts are also right, uh, number three, causing rejoicing. Uh, there is a joy in lives being transformed and living how we were built and called to live. This isn't uh, miserably resigning ourselves to the word. No, this is rejoicing from the wisdom and the perfections found in it and the life laid out to us in it. There's a joy to lives being transformed by the word of God. And more quickly, attributes four through six. There is the pure commandment. Notice it's singular. The pure commandment enlightens our eyes. Uh, this singular nature to the commandment is interesting, and the idea of purity has a unity to it as well. It's not mixed. Uh, if, you, if you purchase something, you want it to be pure, because it's not been watered down with something else that's cheaper. 
So how do we summarize the commandments of God as just one commandment? Well, Jesus did this. He took Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, and he put them together. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God, love neighbor. It's pure. It cannot be filtered through our human judgments. You cannot chop up God's word and pick and choose the parts you like and don't like. And I say you can't cherry pick the Bible. Not cherry picking the law sees it as pure gold, all of it to be listened to, both informing us how we are meant to live and also allowing it to condemn us when we see our sin rightly. In short, the great purity of the law tells us that we do not keep it. And how surely great and glorious is the God whose perfect holiness and godliness is displayed in it. We need a clean, pure, awestruck fear of this sovereign God, David says. This brings David and us to a humbled state of reverential fear at such a holy lawgiver. We can only say all the rules, the decisions, the rulings, the measurements of God are true, righteous, and just forever. His truth is constant. It endures. It does not shift. It does not change with each generation. God's word is constantly and consistently true. And this should actually revive the soul, rejoice the heart, and enlighten the eyes. It's not just cold, hard facts. No, it's a beautiful experience to be fed upon, to be valued. David uses the imagery of gold and honey. Not just describing what the word God is like, but how desirable it is. Uh, this brings us to verses 10 and 11. Look with me at the delightfulness of the word, its value and benefit. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. I don't know about you, but I don't think about honey in probably quite the same sense of David. I just like a lot of sugar in my coffee. I prefer it over honey. Uh, but maybe baklava or the Chick-fil-A chicken minis have the little drizzle of honey. That gets me a little more excited for honey. This chicken minis. It's in White's eyes the my father, before baseball games, would give us a tablespoon of oil for long-term energy, and he would give us a tablespoon of honey right before the game for that quick burst of energy. That's what David is feeling. He, he reads the word, and it just brightens his day. For you, this might be your first cup of coffee in the morning. Uh, the, the word of God is delightful and enlivens in our eyes. It brightens us up. You're getting your food, your enjoyment from somewhere. And the same thing with gold. You're, getting, you're gaining value from somewhere. But it may be fool's gold. It may be high fructose corn syrup. You need something that is actually enlivening to your heart and actually nourishing 
Every culture, every religion offers these things, but unless it's truly the word of God who made us, we're getting a distorted message. So look to the word of God as sweet, enriching, enjoyable, and desirable. We often think that desire is a bad thing, that we should desire things less. Uh, but desire is not bad. That's more of a Buddhist concept. Whether desire is good or bad is determined by the goodness of the object, object, the goodness of the end of that desire. Is it a gift from God, a part of the goodness of creation, or is it a distortion of the fall? To discern the difference, we need a source to be warned from. Think of the wisdom of Proverbs, warning the good paths and the life found there versus the treacherous paths. Being in God's word warns. Take this good path and live. Take this treacherous path and suffer these types of consequences. In other words, there is a blessing in listening to the word. Why? Because the creator knows how his creatures ought to live. How they will ultimately and long-term be happiest, be blessed. And our hearts are restless, as Augustine says, until they find their rest in him, until we find our enjoyment in God. For David, the sweetness of Scripture, the value is actually accented and made complete by gaining the warning from it. Scriptural warnings are a guide into a life that is pleasing to God. And that is as valuable as gold to David. He's not saying the scriptures are sweet, but man, there's a lot of warnings in there. Man, the, the scriptures are valuable, uh, but I wish that God would have fewer directions to me. So he says, God, thank you for taking the time to warn a sheep like me from running off that cliff. Thank you for not having apathy towards me, but an active love. What does this do to David? What drives us to prayer? Don't forget, this is a prayer to the Lord. And after thinking about scripture and its warnings to him, David responds uh, with this closing section of prayer. Uh, look in verses 12 through 14. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Now, part of being deceived is you don't know you are deceived. By definition, if you're deceived, you don't know it. If you take the final authority of Scripture over you away, uh, you become your own final authority. No one will be able to speak into your life. You will form and have your beliefs formed only by your current cultural moment. Because really to make yourself the final autonomous authority is actually to submit yourself to every cultural wind. Uh, People are far better at shaping us than we, we think they are. <laughs> we need correction. And if, if we look to ourselves and we dismiss the Bible, there is no room for correction. You'll be blind to the possibility of error. Who can understand his errors? Cries David. The scripture in this sense uh, acts as a mirror to us. It reveals us. It allows us to see how we really are. Think of it this way. Have you ever been embarrassingly informed by someone that you smelled? <laughs> that you needed a shower? 
and you are blindly going along unable to self-correct. Why? Because you've gone nose blind. Until there is an intervention, until there is an unpleasant intervention, you will be blind to the way you smell. And this is the power of Scripture, the power of God's law to warn, to draw attention to the uncleanness of sin, to its stench, to give us a sharp nose for it. Uh, my wife Anna is pregnant. She's about nine months pregnant. She's due June 12th. And I knew this was coming. There's a uh, pregnancy nose. There's nesting phase that kicks in. And in that phase, she chases every little smell in the house. She cleans. She gets everything right. She complains about me for some reason. She has a sharp nose for anything that might harm that baby when it comes. And she needs to do this. It's actually a gift from God. So we need to ask God, God, make my nose so sensitive to sin in my life that I am nauseated by it. That I'm not ignorant of its true nature so that I hate it. Have you ever had food poisoning? You never want to go back to that restaurant again. God, give me food poisoning towards sin. How comforting before you go out to know, yes, indeed, I am squeaky clean, innocent in our Father's eyes. In fact, in Christ, I smell good. I am a pleasing aroma to God the Father because I have the assurances and the promises of Christ's blood covering over my sin. There's the wisdom, there's wisdom and knowledge of what secret sins are still in my life. I am aware of my errors because God speaks to me continually in his word. Uh, briefly, I'll say, when, when we're applying the Bible, it's helpful to remember sinner, sufferer, saint. Uh, some of you, every time you open the Bible, all you see is sinner. There's, a, there's an over-introspection here. And, and you need to lean in the fact that in Christ that you are made clean you're adopted and accepted as a son and a daughter. See, see what God says to you as a saint. And for others of us, uh, every time we open the Bible, it's, it's our suffering uh, in it. So, so ha have a balance that the Bible speaks to many uh, areas of your life. And my wife was particularly sensitive to every time she opens it, it's, uh, well, here's everything I'm doing wrong. Uh, and, and sometimes you need to ask the Lord uh, just for forgiveness and the assurance of what Christ uh, has done for you in this. But in this moment, David says, I'm hard-headed. I need a wake-up call to my sin. There may be presumptuous sin in my heart. I might actually be uh, under-sensitive and under-aware uh, to this sin in my life. And this takes him to his next step in his prayer. Look in verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. But Numbers chapter 15 speaks about what to do when someone sins against the law of Moses unintentionally and unknowingly. It's still sin, but has less severe punishments uh, temporally under the law of Moses. Uh, but there's also sections about what to do when someone presumptuously, high-handedly sins against the Lord. 
And David's prayer is saying, I have searched your word, gained wisdom from it, and I see my sin more clearly. Now, what am I going to do about it? There's a danger that David is well aware of, of arrogantly, high-handedly seeing his sin and doing it, of still hurling himself headlong into sin. Uh, this is intentionally listening to God in his word and out of the strength given to us fleeing sin versus being aware of something that is sinful and then starting your elaborate setup to begin justifying yourself and your own eyes. And we, and we are very creative at self-justification of our sins, are we not? We are excuse-making machines. Pastors and teachers justify their knowingly teaching false doctrine because of the comfortability and the praise they get from it. Business owners knowingly justify abuse of employees. Employees justify stealing time or improperly done work. Family members justify treating each other more poorly than they would anyone else in a life because family is stuck with them. I've heard too many stories of husbands or wives who were experts at justifying every small step of their way towards an affair. We justify how we use our money. Any sin, you name it, can be explained away given enough time and effort and twisting of scripture. I tell my students frequently, uh, anybody can question anything in the Bible if you give them 900 pages to do it. And some people have too much time on their hands. David pleads, Lord, keep me from these presumptuous sin. Uh, keep me from finding that one internet subculture that will tell me anything I want to hear and self-justify me in it. Because there's 30 people somewhere in the world who will pat me on the back for what I'm doing. Keep me from that, Lord. To never again want to sin against the Lord in this way. To never again, step by step, knowingly doing what we know is evil. From seeking to taking the murdering as David did with Bathsheba. And who helped David after his sin with Bathsheba? Who helped David? Yes, God did. But God did it by sending Nathan. And Nathan wisely came to David with a little story that was meant to prick his conscience about a little sheep, to, to go David's indignation once more, to be able to actually see his sin that he had numbed himself against. So you need to be willing to do two things. Be willing to go to one another for help with sin. And secondly, be willing to speak to others about their sin with the motivation of love and the tactfulness of Nathan. Not all sin is presumptuous sin. There is hope for loving correction and speaking truth to brothers and sisters and discerning whether something is done out of ignorance or presumption. And the word of God is sweet as honey, but moreover, we are warned. Our errors are exposed, and we turn to God for help in putting those sins to death. And that is a good thing. David closes with this prayer in verse 14. He grounds his hope in God as his redeemer. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God has spoken to David life and comfort of his glory at the start of this psalm. 
Now, David is asking God to change how he speaks, thinks, and lives. The conversation with God and reflecting on creation has revitalized David. He sees that he needs to be changed by God. He needs a particular relationship from God. He needs a relationship that comes from a new heart. He needs a redeemer. He needs every thought, word, and deed to be realigned, to be thinking God's thoughts after him. And that is impossible without a new heart and a redeemer. We need a rock and a redeemer. God is a sure, safe, and certain turning place for help for repentant sinners. And when we turn to him, we know him as my redeemer, the one who pays the debts of sin, the one who frees sinners sold into slavery. God comes to us enslaved and in ruin by sin and goes to the root of our hearts because sin flows from our hearts. So our hearts must be dealt with. David knows these things in part. He knows these things in shadow, but we know in full. We have a more complete and full and final sufficient word from God. We can know and meditate on the word made flesh. Jesus living, dying, and rising for us. The word fully and finally revealing God. We know God as creator, as our covenant Lord, but most importantly, Jesus as our redeemer, savior, and king. Do you, like David, see your need for a redeemer? Do you recognize that this redeemer is Jesus? Has the law of God acted as a mirror, exposing your sin and need of him, as a plow tilling and revealing your sin? If not, you encounter him through scripture. I would suggest starting with John's gospel, where we encounter Jesus and through him know God as our father. If you do not know Jesus as your Redeemer, then through the Word made effective by the Holy Spirit, the mind of Christ, our Savior, dwells in you, and the Spirit works in your heart and mind to transform you to be more like himself every day. He intends for this to be done in his Word by the Holy Spirit. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray and ask that your Word would be sweet as honey and as valuable as gold to us. Lord, help us to find your warnings in Scripture a blessing. Help it to be a lamp unto our feet. Help it to drive us to you for forgiveness of the sins revealed there. Help us, Lord, to look to Christ for forgiveness and cleansing and our justification. And then, Lord, with joy as sons and daughters, direct us back to your word for guidance into life and blessedness. Lord, we ask by your spirit that you would give us the strength new every morning to put our sins to death, to live for you in community as a gathered body, your bride, the church, and give us, Lord, the certain hope of heaven that is firmly fixed on the foundation of your word and the work of Christ, that we can rejoice under hardship, knowing that our hope is fixed in heaven. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.